We're about ready. We have I have two announcements tonight, and um, pay attention to um, especially the second one. The first one is that we're having the Chafer Conference starting in two weeks from Monday, and so we need volunteers, I think, still to help out and do different things. And um, this, I think this is going to be one of the best conferences we've had. People are going to learn a tremendous amount of stuff you just don't normally get a chance to learn. And for those who are planning to go to Israel, uh, there's going to be a lot of archaeological information that you're going to wish you had heard if you go to Israel and did not hear it, just because it gives you a broader base of knowledge from which to, uh, from which to operate. So that's going to be really good. The second thing is is that, as, as you all know, I woke up at 4 o'clock in the morning in Kiev, or a little after, Almost a year ago, 4 o'clock in the morning in Kiev is 8 p.m. here. So last year that was on Wednesday night here. This year it's Thursday night here. Next Thursday night is the one-year anniversary. Somewhere between 8 and just after was when um, that war started and all the excitement and all the prayers and everything that, that went up. So... Uh, on Tuesday afternoon, Igor Smolyar, who's one of our missionaries that we support, his wife Julia, their daughter Sophia, who's 18, and son Matthew, who's 9, will arrive at Intercontinental Airport. And Daniel, of course, is already here. So they may or may not be here Tuesday night, depending on jet lag, but they will be here next Thursday night. And Oleg Lazinski, who is the pastor of the Word of God Church in Kiev and also the director of the Word of God Bible College, which is, has suspended classes for the duration, uh, will record a video about the spir- spiritual life, the impact spiritually of this war on people there. And he's going to record a video. I, we didn't have the heart to ask him to get up at 3.30 in the morning and wake up and get on on a live conversation. So he's going to give a report. Eager's going to give a report. And Jim and I are both going to say some things. And focus, the focus, as always, is going to be on the spiritual, the biblical priorities. But we need to know what's going on. And so that's going to give you a firsthand uh, uh, opportunity to talk to uh, these two men who are have both been involved in a lot of things there. So that's next Thursday night. So I think we'll have a, uh, once word's gone out, we have not announced that. It needs to be set out as an announcement um, by email so people know. So trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. After a few moments of silent prayer, so you can make sure you're in right relationship with the Lord, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so very thankful because we have a salvation that is so great, it's beyond anything that we can imagine, and that we have your word that is alive and powerful, and it is by means of your word that we are sanctified as our Lord prayed, and that your word is not to be taken lightly and that we are to hide it in our hearts, we're to cherish it, we are to treasure it. 
And Father, not everyone in this world has that opportunity. There are many countries, probably most countries, that don't have even Christian literature that people can can hold on to and read and and study. So Father, we we do thank you for these wonderful blessings that we have. We pray for our nation. We pray for things that are going on around the world by nations and people that despise our country and despise Christianity. And we know that we are to stand fast, as we'll study in our scripture tonight. Uh, but, Father, we, we just trust in you. We do not have omniscience. We don't know what's coming. And, Father, we just trust in you. So, Father, we pray that as we study your word tonight, it might encourage us, strengthen us, challenge us. In Christ's name, amen. All right. Let's open our Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. We are coming to the end of Philippians chapter 1, and we have finished the introduction. Last week we finished the introduction, which took us down to 126. And so tonight we're going into the last few verses. This is where the chapter division should have been if they understood the structure of the book, because you're shifting from the prelude, which had two parts as we studied, to the opening introduction to the main body of the epistle. And it sets up what some of the major themes are going to be that are going to be developed starting in 2-1 and extending down uh, to chapter uh, 4, verse verse, uh, 20. And the focal point of these um, of this four-verse introduction to the rest of the book, it sets the theme, and it is in the command at the beginning of verse 27, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, you might want to ask the question, well, how are we to conduct ourselves in a way that's worthy of the gospel of Christ? That's what is covered in the body of the epistle. So that's what we'll be studying as we go forward. It, it, it's not only the topical sentence for this introductory paragraph of verses 27 to 30, but it is the topical sentence for the rest uh, of, uh, of the epistle. So let's just read through this as we learn about what it means to live worthy. This is a New King James translation, and I just want to point out a couple of things by way of structure. A lot of people just don't understand structure, but structure is how the writer organized his thinking to emphasize the things that he wanted to emphasize. And there's a lot of things that go on in terms of how they structured sentences to bring out key points and relate all of that together. So I like to talk a little bit about structure as we're going into a paragraph. So we read this in the New King James, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your opponents which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. Now there's a number of ways we need to update clarify and and clean up some of that translation, but uh, that will come. What we have here is basically two sentences, and as I have taught many times, the sentence is the basic unit of thought. Even when you have a compound complex sentence, it's still the basic unit of thought. And so the first sentence is in verse 27 and 28. And the second sentence is verse 29 to 30. And what you want to look for as you're analyzing a passage like this, and you see that 27 to 28 is, uh, when you read it, it's got result clauses. It's got your, your main clause, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. The result that he's looking for is then stated, whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I can hear of your affairs, uh, 
And what he wants to hear is expressed by the word that. And what he wants to hear is that you're standing fast in one spirit with one mind together for the faith of the gospel. And then there's a contrast. And not in any way terrified or intimidated, as we'll see, by your adversaries or opponents, which is to them a proof of destruction, perdition, possibly destruction's better, but to you of deliverance and that from God. And then there's going to be this start with the word for. You've got to understand what that is. Here it's not. It's more of a explaining the cause for the command. Because to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ. Two things, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now we're not going to get there tonight, but that's, that's what's coming. And uh, next time, having the same conflict which you saw in me. And they saw that. When did they see that? They saw that in Acts 16 when Paul first came to Philippi. And he first met with uh, uh, Lydia, who was from Thyatira and is the seller of purple and some other women, because there weren't enough men. There needed to be ten men to have a synagogue. Ten men is called a minion, M-I-N-Y-A-N. That's your Jewish education for the evening. You have to have a minimum of ten men to have a synagogue. And so they didn't have a synagogue, obviously. Now, what what do we know about Philippi? Well, Philippi was a Roman colony. This was the retirement center for Roman soldiers and officers and uh, politicians. And they would go to Philippi. So it's a Roman uh, imperial colony, which means that uh, it had special privileges that they had. Who Those who lived there had special privileges as if they were living in Rome. Now, that's very important. That takes us back to understanding some things that happened in Acts 16. So just to remind you, when they got there, uh, Paul was going through the streets, and he is uh, giving the gospel at different places, but he has... Uh, someone who has decided to volunteer to be his PR person and to tell everybody who he is. But this was a woman who was possessed by a demon and is a fortune teller. And uh, what she was saying about him was correct, but he didn't want to have... um, he He didn't want to be validated by a demon. So he got a little uh, irritated with her and told her to be quiet and cast out the demon. Now, her masters, because she was a slave, her masters were just a little bit peeved as he destroys their business with one command. And so they start a riot uh, against Paul. And so the people join in, and there's this huge problem, and then the uh, the authorities come in and arrested them and began to beat them under the authority and, and, and approval of the magistrates. And it, it happened so quickly that Paul didn't have time to assert his Roman citizenship. And then they threw him in jail. And so they're in jail overnight, and he and Silas are singing hymns. Now, Paul is, if we know him, and we do, he is giving the gospel to the others who are in the jail. The jailer is nearby, so the jailer's hearing all of this. He can't avoid it. I've shown you pictures of what they think is what the jail was like. And um, and so he couldn't avoid it. But suddenly at night, there's this, this like earthquake, and the chains fall off. And the jailer realizes that the jail's open, and he assumes they've escaped. And in the Roman system, if you're in charge of prisoners and the prisoners escapes, that escape, it's the death penalty. So he's just absolutely certain that he's going to die. And he comes in there, and he grabs his sword, he's going to kill himself. And Paul says, stop, stop, we're all here, nobody left. And the jailer said, well, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your family. So he's he's not just saying, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved and your family also, but they have to believe as well. And that's really explained in the next verse that Paul talked with them. 
and explained a lot. So he didn't just pull out his gospel gun and say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, assuming that that was all the information they needed. I've heard people, young teenagers in the Christian life who don't have enough sense to come in out of the rain, who think that's all they need to do to evangelize is to tell somebody to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. They don't know what it means to believe. They don't know who Jesus is. Uh, they think he's Jesus, their gardener. They don't know anything. And and Paul didn't just do that. There's a context. He's been in Philippi. He's been going through. People probably were talking about him. He gets thrown in jail. He's talking about the gospel. They're singing hymns. And the jailer could hear all of that. And then in verse 32, it says, and they uh, continue to uh, tell him about God and about Jesus. So he's not believing in just because of that short statement. Uh, there's a lot more context that was provided that we're not told about other than there was that conversation. And so the next morning, that next morning, uh, when, the, um, when the magistrates come to check on them, Paul pulls out his ace in the hole and he says, we're not going anywhere because we are... I'm a Roman citizen, and you have beaten me, which was a severe violation of Roman law. You could not uh, beat... You, there were many different ways you could not punish a Roman citizen, and you couldn't punish them at all until there was a trial. And so they viol- all, violated all these laws, so they were really afraid of Paul at that point, and, and, and they left. So that's important to understand this background uh, just just a little bit that he's, he's dealing with people who are living in a, a Roman colony as Roman, Roman citizens. And there's, there's opposition there, to, to, and has been when he was there, uh, and that's why he suffered for Christ's sake, and he was in that conflict with those authorities. So we have the two verses, and the two independent clauses or main ideas are stated in verse 27 the first part in the first sentence and in verse 29 the second sentence. The first is a command to let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Have we talked about walking worthy any time recently? Ephesians 4 and 5 is all about how a Christian is to walk in the new man. So that the, he, he, he's just giving this command here and the rest of the epistle is going to be explaining it. The second sentence in the paragraph is, is in verse 29, which should be translated because to you it has been granted not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And that's all developed within the rest of this epistle. So those are the two big thoughts. Number one, you're to walk worthy. And number two, God in his grace has given mankind the opportunity to be saved and the opportunity to believe the gospel and possibly the opportunity to suffer for his sake. Although Paul gets a little more dogmatic in 1 Timothy and he says those who desire to, to be godly uh, will be persecuted. Sounds like it's a promise. That's not one of those promises most people want to claim. So some of the ways that this is translated, looking at a variety of different translations, you can see most of them are getting at the same idea. I've already read the New King James. The ESV says only let your manner of life be worthy. That's related to the word conduct. And in the NASB 95, only conduct yourself. So it uses similar language to NKJV. The RSV says let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The new revised standard changes it to only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. King James really, I I put this in here because I like to be reminded of the thundering diction of the King James, which is often more obscure now than it was uh, when it was written. Let your conversation, now for us conversation is talking with one another. Conversation was your way of life back when this is written. 
okay? Conversation is your way of life, and, and that includes dialogue. Uh, Roger Bacon may, was very famous. He's the, uh, uh, not Roger Bacon, Francis Bacon, um, made a wonderful observation. He said, conversation makes a man ready. That includes your way of life and your dialogue. When you talk through things, it makes you ready to, to maybe do something more than just talk. Um, he says, um, first of all, he says, reading makes a man full. Conversation makes a man ready. Writing makes a man precise. And if you ever work for a tough editor, you will learn how precise you have to be when you write. And how amazing it is, most Christians and most Christian books that are written for the, for the public are written poorly. They use too many too much just genuine general Christian jargon and not really uh, slang wouldn't be the right word but they're just everyday phrases that a lot of Christians use and people don't ever say well what do you really mean by that and those questions are asked if you have an editor if you use phrases like that you have to be a little more precise so anyway when you look at this we see that they translate the Greek word behind this in a similar way, it has to do with the way of life, their manner of life, their conduct, how they live their life. And we're going to have to decide, well, what does that word really mean? So this is, that, that's, that's the breakdown. And we have to then come to understand how this works. So the basic question that would be asked after reading this is, how do we really walk worthy of the gospel. And that is what comes from this. And walking worthy has to do with, uh, with it's how we live our life, it's conduct, it's all of those things, but it's, but it's a little more as we're going to see. So when we ask this question, what is a worthy walk? When we look at just the context, and I'm giving kind of an overview of these four verses at the beginning tonight, it's first of all, unity. That's what's emphasized in at the end of verse 27. With one mind, well, first of all, that you stand fast in one spirit. And I think that that's a use of spirit there that really talks about your mindset, your mentality, that you're unified in, in, your, in, your, uh, in your focus. And then with one mind, and that shifts from pneuma, which is spirit, to suke, which is soul. So it's really emphasized on, on just this deep soul unity. Okay? That you stand fast, stand firm in one spirit with one mind, and then striving together like a good team. When a good team is, is working together, then they're just, it, it's just a magnificent thing to watch. And you can, you can see that at times in, in various sports events that the team just comes together and it's, it's as if they are uh, one with one another. And that's how the body of Christ should be. When you get into the first part of chapter 2, that's what Paul's talking about, especially in verses 2 through 4 which sets up one of the greatest passages on the person of Christ. And in chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, he expands the unity idea of 127, and he has seven characteristics of this unity. It's like-minded, having the same love, third, being of one accord, fourth, being of one mind, Fifth, nothing is done from selfish ambition. That, in my opinion, that disqualifies about 80% of the pastors in this country. You know, the competitiveness that is out there is disgusting. Wasn't long ago, maybe I heard this 10 years ago, that if you turn on a lot of the, the guys on television with the big churches, they come out in their blue jeans or their shorts and their sandals and their T-shirts and look like they just rolled out of bed. You don't have pastors in 
suits and ties anymore. But there's one exception in terms of these megachurches. And that's this guy down here off the Southwest Freeway. And they all ganged up on him. They started giving him a hard time because he wouldn't dress down. Because he always comes out wearing a coat and tie. And for that, I respect him. He's not following the trend of coming out looking like you just rolled out of bed and put on the clothes that were in the dirty clothes hamper. And uh, they, 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 see, it's that, that competitive. You're not doing it the way we're doing it, and you need to join us. So, so we're, all, we're all doing this the same. Um, so that's just their, their selfish competitiveness. But in humility... And the phrase that's used here in the Greek is used is humility is lowliness of mind is what you see there, but what it means is humility. And then esteeming others as better than yourself. And then lastly, looking out for the interest of others as well as one's own. So these are seven characteristics of unity. So that illustrates what I'm saying here is that this starts off with the general ideas we're going to see uh, developed and fleshed out in the body of the epistle. This is just the uh, opening introduction here. So Paul says in this first sentence that gives this command to let your conduct uh, be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs. And then we see the word that. This translates a, a Greek word, a hadi, that is, um, it, it can mean because, it can, it can basically be untranslated because it's introducing a direct quote. It can be translated that as it's introducing an indirect quote. And after verbs of seeing and hearing, see, it says, I may hear, it expresses the content of what you hear. If it's a verb of seeing, then after it says, you, you saw that, it's telling you what was seen. So that's what it, it, he wants to hear. This is the report that they're standing firm, they're standing fast in unity. And then we go to verse 28, and there's a contrast, and it says, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, your opponents, your enemies. It could be translated a number of those, those ways. Now, it's real easy to get terrified when you're in certain situations. This morning, one of the very first things I saw on my phone when I awakened was a text about a report, and I don't know where that text came from, but I did a search on it, and I found other reports, and the one I'm going to show you here in just a minute is from ABC News in Australia, and this is the headline. Queensland police say that, and I don't know how to pronounce this, Weambula shooting, this was a shooting that took place, and several people were killed uh, recently, it's a terrorist attack motivated by premillennialism. Here's what that means. A terrorist attack motivated by premillennialism. Y'all are a bunch of terrorists. I didn't say you're terriers. I said you're terrorists. Okay? And so uh, this is this is what was reported. You know, by by the uh, chief of police, Christian extremist ideology has been linked to other attacks around the world, but this is the first time we've seen it in Australia. Now, this is just a harbinger of things to come. I'm going to read the rest of this article to you because it really doesn't define anything for you. It doesn't come along and say, why, how did they jump to this conclusion? Well, it doesn't matter because the unsaved pagan world out there, the, the, woke, uh, the woke radical leftist don't care. They just jump to these conclusions. And their conclusion is anybody that doesn't believe in my woke radical leftist agenda, agenda 
is, first of all, they are anti-democracy. And you need to think about that because that's what you've heard long before January 6th a couple of years ago was anybody who disagrees with them is against democracy. They define the term now. And anybody who doesn't believe in their woke leftist, which is really Marxist uh, uh, worldview, is their enemy. And they're an enemy of their freedom, and they're an enemy of their democracy. And so they think that this they, they, they want to stamp it out. And that's where we're headed. This is just a harbinger of things to come. Uh, we've already seen how they have, they're trying to marginalize all conservatives and Republicans. Every time they open their mouth, the first thing they say is they hate, they're against democracy. They hate democracy. They don't want to take our democracy away from us. And they're defining democracy as the freedom between the freedom to be uh, homosexual, LGBTQ perverts, and to uh, live in a fantasy world where they can be whatever they want to be. In the morning, they may be a woman when they've got different hardware, and in the afternoon, they may be a whatever. They're going to pick between a hundred and some odd um, uh, genders, and we laugh at that. But I've been given a good report from a reasonably solid source that I trust that there is a principal in a high school in Sci Fair who lets the kids come and be whatever they want to be every day. And that one of the kids was going to be a, is a cat. And her parents came down and said, and brought a kitty litter box for her to put into the girl's restroom so that she could use the kitty litter box because she's a cat. The trouble is that our universities are graduating education majors who are Marxist, radical leftist activists. And they go into the schools. They go in to be teachers, and they become administrators. And they're just going to do the same thing you would do when you're in that position. You're going to live and operate on the basis of your norms and standards. And their norms and standards are divorced from reality. But that's what's happening at the public school level all the way up. And I know there are exceptions. But there's a book that is in our library. I've just gotten a couple more copies for um, uh, Russell and Alex to read called Already Gone by Ken Ham. came out about 10 years ago in which he, do he documents how rapidly kids who grow up in evangelical churches are turned to the dark side within six or eight weeks of starting university. And I think that if I were a Christian parent, you have to start early. You have to be teaching them and training them before they can ever even understand the words about uh, global warming and climate change and uh, Mother Earth and all of these things. It just needs to become part of their intellectual baggage by the time they're three or four because as soon as they get into preschool, they're going to be taught uh, all the propaganda about Mother Earth and the, and the ecology and everything else, which is just pure paganism. So you've got, got to, and you've got to teach them the Bible. From the moment that kid comes home from the hospital, you start reading Bible stories to them every single night. And they're going to hear them. They can't talk yet. But the, when they, when a child, an infant, hears voices, that's formatting their brain to the language. And you're formatting their, formatting their brain to the English language with the Word of God. And that's vital. You don't do that. You wait, oh, I'm going to wait till my kid is old enough to make decisions and we won't talk about religion with him. Well, you just signed his, his spiritual death warrant, as it were. They're not ever going to get the truth. But God's grace can break through just makes it more difficult. But when you're omnipotent, I guess nothing is difficult. But that's what's happening. You get a lot of parents, all of a sudden their kids hit 12 or 13. It's too late, way too late. You wonder why you have behavioral problems. You wonder about this and you wonder about that. And I've, I've told this story over and over again that this is back in early 60s that I came home one day. I'd 
met a guy at school. We'd become friends. I said, well, I want to go over to his house this afternoon. My mother said, well, tell me about him. Is he a believer? And that was always the first question my mother asked me whenever I get, she heard a name of somebody that I was hanging around that she didn't know. She Well, are they a believer? Now, that was important. That started when I was five or six years old. So by the time I wanted to, I was about 16, wanted to go out on a date, I knew what that first question was going to be. And if I hadn't talked to the girl and hadn't found out what her eternal destiny was or given her the gospel and she was saved, I knew I wasn't going anywhere with them. And that's how parents need to be. They need to be a lot, today they probably need to be even more strict because the world out there is so much worse than you thought it was in the 50s and 60s. So anyway, according to this ABC article, they asked the question, well, what is premillennialism? Notice how they're not right. See, what you have is people who, do, who are atheist, they're secular, they're Marxist, they're extreme leftists, and they have never been in any kind of religious institution. And in their worldview, anything that is religious, not just anything that is Christian, anything that is religious can be turned to terrorism because all religion is basically dogmatic and it's prone to violence. That's their assumption. So they say premillennialism is the belief that after a period of extreme suffering, Jesus Christ will physically return to earth for a thousand years. In its basic interpretation, there was a belief that Christ will return to earth and provide peace and prosperity, but it will be preceded by an era or a period of time of tribulation. Widespread destruction and suffering, Deputy Commissioner Linford said. They started preparing for the end of days. So that's what they're going to put on these three murderers, this broken, corrupt family. Josh Ruse, an associate professor of politics and expert on far-right and religious extremism at Deakin University... Notice he's an expert on far-right and religious extremism. He doesn't know diddly about the Bible or biblical theology, but he's, a, he's an expert on religious extremism. Said the trio would have believed the world was corrupt and fast imploding. Quote, he says, It is a Christian belief that in effect the world is so corrupt, so evil, so beyond repair, that at some point in the near future we're facing the implosion of the world effectively, an apocalyptic event, and that Jesus will return to earth. How does that relate to premillennialism? See, there's no logical connection in the way the writer of this article puts anything together. He, he really hasn't explained anything, but he's made you feel like these premillennial Christians are the coming t- wave of terrorist terrorism in the future. He says his, his, this guy, Dr. Roos, goes on to say historically cults and apocalyptic cults and so on have always looked to what's going on in the world around them and drawn upon that as evidence for the world ending. Cults and apocalyptic cults. Premillennialists just got lumped into cults and apocalyptic cults. This is extremely dangerous. And this is just, you know, in and of itself, this is just an isolated thing probably. But there are other isolated things that are happening, and they come together. But you see how the world is is forcing people to start interpreting something that is normative in Christianity. So we are not to be terrified because the suffering could be coming in our lifetime. So in verse 27, Paul says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that, this is the result that he wants. He wants your conduct to be consistent and worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ, or the gospel of Christ, rather. And that means three things. Stand fast with one spirit. We're to be unified. The visible church is anything but unified. I'm not talking about the visible West Houston Bible Church. I'm talking about the visible of those who label themselves Christians. 
Second, he says, by, we're to be striving together, working together toward a common goal. People, are, people who aren't going to a common goal cannot work together. So they can't be unified by definition. And third, for the faith of the gospel. So this is what he's calling for. Now, the interesting thing is this word that he begins with. And notice how Paul tailors his message to an audience. Every pastor needs to do this. I do this. I think some people think that if I were to come and speak at their church, which doesn't have a lot of background, that I would teach them the same way I teach here at West Houston Bible Church. I don't. I spent a lot of years talking to and teaching black pastors in a black Baptist setting where there was a lot of hooping and many other things. And you have to take people where they are. You don't take people where they where they aren't. And we started this church. We had a lot of mature believers who were under good Bible teaching for a long time. And we're transitioning to getting a lot of younger, younger ones that don't have that background. And I wrestle with that, that I need to be changing, focusing things on so that these younger ones can begin to grow and mature and learn the Bible uh, because that's how the older ones in this congregation got to where they are. So this first word, conduct, uh, let your conduct, uh, it, they've translated the verb as a, it is a, an imperative as to let your conduct or con, uh, conduct yourselves. It's a, the Greek verb is polituomai from the root uh, the noun root polis for city, like at the end of metropolis, you have this. this it's the city, and so it has. It's where we get our word politics, and so it has to do with how a country is ruled or, or governed, or how a citizen conducts their, themselves, and it's a uh, a present middle or present uh, yeah present middle imperative. Uh, which uh, has to do with the fact that you're to do the, you're to make this decision about how you're going to conduct yourself. It has that sort of reflexive idea, and it is often used to mean uh, to live as a citizen, okay, and not not or to conduct your your life, and this is to be done in a manner. Uh, that is uh, worthy of the gospel. Now, I'm going to go back to this, this, this slide with polytuma. This word is only used, polytuomai, the verb, is only used one other time in the New Testament. And that one other time that it is used is in Philippians 1.19, where, excuse me, that's the wrong verse. It's in Acts uh, it shows up in Acts. I think I lost. Oh, Acts 23.1. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, this is when he is on trial before the Sanhedrin, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the word that is translated, I have lived, is this verb, polytuomai. And it is it has this idea that uh, in BDAG, which is your standard Greek lexicon, the first meaning is to be a citizen or live in light of your or live your citizenship. And the third meaning, uh, you know, that, that in a dictionary, when they list them one, two, three, four, five, one is the most common, second is the most second most common, third is the third most common meaning. And it is to conduct your life or live. So the translation, only let your uh, live your life worthy of the gospel is a very good translation, uh, but it does have this sort of citizenship uh, background, and so I've chosen to translate this: only continue to exercise your citizenship in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now he's going to come back to this citizenship later in Philippians three. He's going to talk about our citizenship in heaven. But he hasn't really defined that yet. So if you're reading through the, the epistle, 
you're going to read this before you understand the meaning in chapter 3 because you haven't gotten there yet. But the idea here is that you're just living your citizenship. And he's he's got a nuance here for these uh, people in Philippi because they are Roman citizens and they're proud of it and they are patriotic and they want to be good law-abiding citizens. And so when he says, live your life, and he uses this word, the innuendo there is just like you want to be a good Roman citizen, you need to be a good citizen of heaven. You need to be uh, living as a good citizen worthy of the gospel uh, of Christ. And when we get to that phrase, the gospel of Christ, that is the gospel that is about Christ, that focuses on Christ. But where else have we heard this term about living worthy? This is in Ephesians 4. Think about what we studied back when we were in Ephesians 4.1. Now, the top verse on the screen is the New King James translation, I therefore... The prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And that's a good, fairly literal translation, but it sort of misses the significance and the nuance there. And so I've translated it as I did when we went through Ephesians 4. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, strongly urge you. That's what beseech means. That's an older English word we don't use much anymore. Uh, strongly urge you to conduct your life in a manner worthy of the exalted position to which you were summoned. Every member of the church age is a member of the body of Christ. We have an exalted position like no other believers in history. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And we, at the instant of our salvation, were baptized by the Holy Spirit and placed into union with Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, our position is in heaven. That's what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 2, uh, 4, 5, and, and 6, when he said, but God has raised us together with, uh, has made us alive together with him, raised us with him, and and exalted us to the right hand of the of the Son of the Father in heaven. We are seated with Him and seated us together with Him. So we have been made alive together, we have been raised together, and we have been seated together in Christ. That is who we are. That is our identity. You look in the mirror and you're trying to figure out, well, am I good looking or not? What value am I? I'm fat, I'm getting old, the hair's gone, all these other things. But that's not how God looks at you. God looks at you as you are in Christ. And no one has a better position or privilege than you do. And how you might look today is irrelevant because that has nothing to do with how you're going to look for eternity. So we of all people should have great confidence and it doesn't, the physical should be irrelevant. We are to live our lives worthy of that identity that we have seated in Christ. So how does Paul describe what this worthy walk is in Ephesians? Does this language sound familiar in comparison with Philippians 2? With all lowliness, it's the same word that Paul uses in Philippians 2, 1 through 4. It's humility. With all humility and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring or striving to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then Paul says, fulfill my... And then then I've got Philippians 2 at the bottom. He says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Uh, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness or in humility... Let each esteem others better than himself. You see the comparison? This is the essence of what it means to walk worthy. It means to kick the arrogance off the throne and to walk in humility and care for one another. I had someone today who told me how proud she was of this congregation, the people who are involved in organizing 
the the Chafer Conference and just how everybody works together so well and have been just such a great uh, example of unity and love for one another in the body of Christ. And that's just great to hear. You know, every now and then you think people might be listening to you. Because I'm always reminded, and you should be too, that God calls us sheep, and that's not a compliment. And that includes me. Okay? We're sheep. And that's not, doesn't mean we're bright and it's wonderful and cuddly and fluffy. So we are to be humble. We're to recognize who we are. So we, we are to live our lives, uh, as good citizens by, uh, being worthy of the gospel about Christ. With the result that, uh, and I'm going to translate that with the gospel about the Messiah, so that with the result that whether I come and see you or and that I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast. And that word is stako, which is a basic word for standing or standing firm. And that would be a good way to translate it, that you stand firm in one spirit, which is unity with one mind. You're like one soul. You're just joined together in a common, uh, a common uh, action, which is to strive together or actually to work together for the faith of the gospel, the faith of salvation that is part of the gospel. So the word there that is translated to stand, uh, not to stand firm, but to working uh, together is this word sunathleo, and it's a participle of means. So it should be translated standing firm by working together. So that helps us understand how are we to work together by standing How do we stand firm? By working together uh, for the faith of the gospel. Well, we're going to run into that word again, but this is the word pistis, which means to trust. It, it, in some contexts, it means to, it refers to naming belief. Uh, which is to understand and agree with and trust the statements of the Scripture. And the contrast comes in verse 28 that we're not to be terrified by our opponents, no matter what they look like, no matter what they, be, they, they threaten us with. And we have it so easy here in the United States. But you go to a lot of countries in this world, they are under severe persecution. There, there are... So many countries in sub-Saharan Africa where the Muslims are going through the villages day in and day out and raping and killing and torturing Christians. And you go to places like India where, where you're, you, you've become the lowest caste if you're a Christian. Or you go to one of the worst places is Pakistan. Uh, and, and the torture and everything. And they hardly even have a Bible that they can read. And, you know, we have uh, missionaries, David Ibrahim and his wife, who go into Africa. He's a fifth-generation pastor uh, that goes into Pakistan. And they distribute literature, and they take a lot of humanitarian aid because of the uh, earthquakes and things that have hit hit Pakistan and the floods. So... This is a tremendous thing, and they give people the gospel, which is the most most important thing. And so we're not to be terrified by the adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition. Now, that's a funny phrase. Which, what is to them a proof of perdition? Any idea? Well, it looks like it would be terrified by your adversaries, that would be to them a proof of perdition. Now, that's not what it is. That's why one of the places where Greek is really, really good, because the the um, the relative pronoun there that is translated which is a feminine singular. Now, if you look back, that means it's got to relate to a noun that is a feminine singular. Well, adversaries is neither feminine nor singular. It's got an S on the end. It's plural. So it can't be referring to that. Uh, it can't be referring to uh, being terrified. You, you, we have to actually go back to verse 27. Gospel is not a feminine noun. Faith is a feminine noun. Faith is a feminine singular noun. So the which goes back to the faith at the end of verse 27. 
So it is by that faith, that faith is to them, the faith of the believer in Jesus Christ who is standing firm is to them a sign, a demonstration, a, a proof, visible proof of their destruction. God, the, unbelievers know. They try to cover it up. They try to hide it. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And there's just something about believers that it's either going to attract them in a positive way or it's going to attract them in a horrible way and they're going to just want to do away with you because you're reminding them that there's a God. So it's a demonstration of their destruction. I'm not going to translate it perdition because that carries with it in English the idea that this is talking about eternal condemnation. I don't think it is because when you look at the next phrase, but to you of salvation. See, we always see these translators who sort of default to any word related to sozo, which is the verb for to save, but it also means to deliver from difficult circumstances. It also means to heal. It has a range of meanings. And and a lot of times what you get is tra- historically as translators, every time they see sozo the verb or soteria the noun, they default to its phase one salvation. On the positive side, they just want everybody to be saved. But on the negative side, they confuse people. Because this is uh, pretty much what Paul said. Here we go. In verse 19. In both verse 19 and verse 28, the salvation is not talking about phase one, phase two, or phase three salvation. It's talking about deliverance from the situation. Paul says this in Philippians 1.19, For I know that this, that is his being uh, being in jail, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, he doesn't know if that's going to be deliverance face-to-face with the Lord or deliverance getting out of jail and being able to continue to minister to them. But as I pointed out last time, the, when he uses, in one nineteen, he uses oida for no. He's saying, I, I'm confident that this will turn out for my deliverance. And he says that again at the end, and in between you see that for a while there he wasn't sure, but now he knows with confidence. I know with confidence that this will turn out for my deliverance. So he's talking about being face-to-face with the Lord, although a lot of people would read that into it. He's talking about his physical deliverance from being in jail. So that's the context for this noun, soteria. So when we... Uh, are back here in verse 28, uh, the perdition is in contrast to the salvation, and the salvation should be not understood as as spiritual salvation, but as physical deliverance. Uh, their faith, standing firm in their faith, is a proof to their enemies of their destruction, not eternal destruction, although that could be hidden in the background, but it's talking about what's going to happen physically. And to you of your deliverance, from what? From the opposition, from their enemies. So all of that's described by having to understand what the the which is. And then next time we'll come back and we'll talk about Philippians one twenty nine and one thirty. Uh, Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. A lot of people, a lot of Calvinists will go to this verse and say, See, God grants you the ability to believe, and faith comes before regeneration. And God gives you saving faith. And we're going to see why that's not what this verse is saying And we'll have to go back and look at a couple of other verses uh, in Ephesians, especially Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Uh, That's the problem there. But next time we'll come and understand what this verse is talking about. Father, we thank you for the encouragement we get that we know that Paul and so many other believers throughout the millennia have suffered untold suffering, torture, burned alive, thrown to the lions uh, because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And that as a result of that, um, they have glorified you by their steadfastness. They stood firm. 
in their unity and their opposition to paganism. Father, we see the dark clouds on the horizon and this event that happened in uh, the reporting of this event that happened in Australia is is just a little foreshadowing uh, of what might come. might not be next week or next year or next decade, but these forces of evil are gathering against the church. And Father, we pray that we might be able to be steadfast and that you would give us courage and that your word would strengthen us so that whether it's minor things or the big things, we can stand firm for the Lord Jesus Christ and for the faith of the gospel. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.